the National Archives podcast series, The Golden Stool, cataloguing colonial office records from 1900, presented by volunteers at the National Archives. Firstly, thanks very much for coming today um, to hear a bit about what we've been working on um, for the past few months. Um, what we really want to do today is to highlight and celebrate um, a cataloguing project that's been going on behind the scenes for about the past eight months here at TNA. Um, it's thanks to a dedicated group of volunteers who are here today um, that we have really tried to make a slice of history from our colonial office records come alive and hopefully inspire and encourage more work on that in the future. Um, it's the volunteers who are going to be speaking today um, and they've got a lot of interesting things to talk about so I will keep my introduction brief but I thought I'd just um, take a moment to tell you a bit more about the project and the area that the records um, are referring to and um, to sort of set the scene. Um, I'll, I'll, yes, as I say, I'll keep it brief and then I'll hand over the floor to them and they're going to talk a little bit about their experiences of cataloguing, um, some of the challenges and the best things that they've found and a little bit more detail about the records themselves. So, to paint the picture, in 1900, war ignited in the Gold Coast, which is present-day Ghana, and you can see it on the left-hand side of the screen there, um, between the Ashanti people and the British in what became, um, at least on the British side, known as the Fifth Ashanti War, or the War of the Golden Stool. Um, this war followed a history of violent clashes between the two during the 19th century, um, and it was triggered by a demand by the British governor early in 1900 that he be given the golden stool. And the golden stool is the throne of the Ashanti people. It's an extremely hallowed object. And you see on the right-hand side here is an image of it taken from our Africa Through a Lens collection. It's a little bit later on, but that's actually the stool sat on a throne of its own um, because it is a, such a hallowed object. It can never touch the floor and, and, and is really um, kept as something to admire and honor. So evidence of the ensuing war after this request and those preceding it can be found throughout our documents, uh, but particularly in colonial office and war office documents, but it's the colonial office documents that we've been concentrating on. Um, CO96 is the correspondence series, um, which is the, the, between the administration in the Gold Coast and London um, during this period. Um, it's a vast, vast series. It's about 830 volumes, stretching from um, about 1840 round to about 1951. Um, within the series, there's obviously a vast amount of material that you would expect in the day-to-day -day running of the colony and anything to do with the administration. But there's also a lot of information about sort of key historic events in the relations between the British and the local people. And that's really what we've been and trying to pull out. So the project aim initially was to select an interesting but currently underused section of the colonial office records, really to open up and highlight what is within them um, and the potential information that's really hidden away that you can't find unless you're actually here and opening up a volume yourself. So we chose um, 1900 and the Gold Coast because we hoped that it would prove interesting but also manageable within a, sort of a, a small period of time. Um, we also wanted it to be of interest to a new group of volunteers that we help, hoped would be able to bring some of their knowledge 
to the cataloguing process. And in this case, we recruited history students who had an interest or, or, or a connection with Africa. So for CO96 for 1900, there are nine volumes of correspondence. And as you can see from the images here, I've tried to show how enormous these volumes are that we're dealing with. Um, Ordinarily, we'd expect to find perhaps one volume of correspondence um, within the Colonial Office per year. Uh, because of what was happening in the Gold Coast during this year, there's, there's one of these volumes for every month to two months. So you can see sort of the amount of material that we're dealing with for just this one year. Um, within each volume, the papers are arranged um, in, as individual dispatch folders, which comprise the correspondence coming from the Gold Coast, sent back to London, and any enclosures that they sent with that. Um, and there's a front sheet generally <coughs> filled in by the clerks in London as they came in, and any official comments um, by anybody who's see then seen that paperwork, and usually a draft response. So there's an awful lot of information packed into each dispatch, which are then put together in these volumes. So currently, um, the volumes look like this on the left-hand side in our catalogue. Um, like so many other Colonial Office series and other series here, they're very poorly described. Um, you can have in one volume information about battles being fought, about the amount of gold being exported, um, or even um, the best way to transport live turtles, all in there next to each other, but only described by the word dispatches in the catalogue, so it doesn't really tell you what to expect. And this is what we've set out to change for this one year. On the right-hand side here, you can see an example from another project that's um, currently ongoing, working in a similar way on Caribbean documents. And you can't really see it in detail there on the screen, but you can see sort of what we're trying to do, expand each description and, and put some keywords in there and be able to make them a little bit more accessible to those outside of Q as well as here. So the volunteers have now nearly finished all nine vol volumes and they've created these individual descriptions and when they're loaded into the catalogue, which I hope will be um, by the end of June, and will really help sort of gain that understanding about the rich content that really is in within this series. And we really hope that it'll encourage researchers to delve a bit further into the series and to other series <coughs> like it, where TNA don't always have the um, resources or the time to do it in as much detail as we'd like. And that's where we really rely on the brilliant work that volunteers here do. Um, so today we're lucky enough to have three of the four volunteers who've been working on this project. Unfortunately, um, Rebecca is tied up with exams, so can't be with us today. But I thought that was fair enough. Um, so the other three uh, are here and have kindly agreed to tell us a little bit more about their experiences, what they found interesting and challenging, and to give you some insight into the process of cataloguing and what being a volunteer at TNA is like, and a little bit about the documents themselves. So firstly, I will hand over to Matt. Okay, um, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to be talking today a bit about how I've used the archives and how undergraduate students, my fellow classmates, and how generally any other students can use the archives. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the importance of them, the difficulties, the various difficulties that I've come across, um, a few debates and on how to approach them, what to discount, what to use, what not to use, and then I'm just going to give a few examples of um, some interesting documents that I came across and how they've impacted and impacted history. Okay, so first point is um, the importance of archival material. 
Um, it, it may seem like an, an obvious point, but obviously archives for a history student are extremely important, um, but there are some problems with them. So um, it's kind of a strange point, but handwriting is an issue, especially non-typewriter archives. Um, luckily enough, the series we did, most of it was typewriter, so you could read it quite clearly. But a lot of the um, drafts, a lot of the other additional information was handwritten and it's it's very tough to read it's very shorthand by the administrators and the clerks um, which proved quite difficult I mean after about two three months when you're into it you can get you can get the gist of it but if you're as a student coming in for you know a couple of days looking at these archives it can prove um, quite difficult um, the non catalog material that that relates into exactly what we've done um, so we spent the last six seven months cataloging all the material which means that so when people come in it's very easy to find like Jenny demonstrated it's got a description um, but a lot of the stuff isn't so as a student when you come in um, and you have to spend the whole day you could spend the whole day looking through archive material and not find anything and that could happen two three days and it, it's really tough when you're trying to write a dissertation trying to write an essay looking for archive material and it's not catalogued um, and the third issue that I came across um, was the issue of language um, and keyword search. So obviously these colonial records and uh, documents were written in 1900, slightly earlier. So you get a lot of um, racist language, you get a lot of different, different terms used to describe current day Ashanti, the spellings are different, Kumasi, the spelling is different. Um, the term for Muslims is used four or five times in different ways, um, which means when you search for one word, you have to search for all of them. Some might include it, some might not. Um, proven again, very time consuming, very difficult. So something like this does help in really just um, being so much more efficient. Um, and the other important aspect is the nature of the colonial records. Um, these, of course, are colonial records. So as a history student, when you look at them, you need to be aware, or anyone looking at them needs to be aware that they are written by colonial officials who will write things that are relevant to them only, not to what generally might be going on. So if as a student I'm studying, for example, um, witchcraft at this time in 1900, um, look, there's lots of mysticism around the Golden Stool. The only information using colonial records you'll get is from what the British or the colonial officers on the ground view witchcraft as, not actually what is going on. So you, we need to be aware of that, and um, it can prove a bit of a problem, but of course if you use lots of sources you can easily get around that. Um, yeah, and also, again, with the nature of the colonial, colonial records, um, even within a certain period of time, as context changes, so especially at this time with the demand for the Golden Stool, there was a lot of uh, pressure from London onto the Gold Coast colonies to make themselves more efficient, to make indirect rule, to start getting chiefs on side, hence going in to ask for the Golden Stool, asserting a sovereignty. Um, again, the, the documents would demonstrate this, but it, they might not necessarily tell you what's going on. Um, you have to be very careful with that, um, I found. So yeah, the uh, use of an archive, um, I'll, I'll demonstrate one just after this, but of course it's a primary source, which means that the weighting of it in an essay or a piece of work is of course a lot better than a secondary source. If you have an argument and you use an extract from a primary source, it looks, bri it looks brilliant. So um, 
again, taken into account the difficulties with the, with the biases from colonial offices, it, it is very helpful. The fact that um, the material never changes, yet the debate goes on, um, it, that's a very important point. So history, of course, when we study it, is all about debates, it's all about um, views and opinions. This, the, the Shanti War here has divided opinion. Was it Hodgson's fault for going and demanding it? Was it the Ashanti fault for um, being, you know, as in the opinion of the colonial ambitious violent people? What, whose fault was it? Um, and it's been debated so many times over the last hundred years. And as history students, we all look through that. However, um, the material, the documents, the, the demand, when you go back to it, that is going to be always there. And as a history student, when you go back to that, that's, that's where your starting point is. If you have no primary source, it's very difficult to start getting other people's views and making your own views. So um, it's very helpful, um, the fact that it doesn't change, of course, it's not going to change. Um, yeah, so um, the next uh, example is, so, so for example, if I, if I give you some examples from my class of um, these debates. So we had one on the War of the Golden Store. Uh, another one example was witchcraft. Now, the, the view of witchcraft changes over the time. You have Christian missionaries coming onto the Gold Coast saying witchcraft is bad or get rid of it, but then it disappears off the colonial records and then it comes back and then it disappears. So, um, using archival material, you can get to grips with what's actually happening. Um, again, bearing in mind that there's going to be a lot of problems, a lot of issues. Yes, okay, so this is um, the one of the extracts that I, well, I didn't come across, one of my fellow volunteers came across and I found as well. But um, this is essentially the demand for the golden stool. Uh, Governor Hodgson went into Kamasi, got all the chiefs together and said, um, in a speech to all of them in public, where is the stool? Why am I not sitting on the golden stool? Um, yeah, and of course, as everyone knows, you know, you don't sit on the golden stool. It's a representation of the throne. Um, and this is, um, it triggered the Yurks into a war, which is how, what the Ashantis used to describe it. Um, and the debate that's come out of this is, does he know the significance of it? Does he know what he's doing? Um, how can he, he, he describes pre previously to this, how he's their friend, how he's been on Ashanti, he knows the customs, but then he does this. So you have to um, try and work out what's he, what is he trying to do? Where is he like, positioning himself? Um, and, of course, um, later on in the debate, he says um, at the bottom, I am certain that until the government possesses this symbol of power, which is regarded by Ashantis with the utmost veneration, it will be wholly secure against intrusive trouble. So this suggests that he does know the importance of it, which then comes back to the debate earlier on, or why did he demand it? So um, you can see the sort of um, the, the basic archival material there, how we then form our own opinion. We use other documents like this. We use other contexts in direct rule. Maybe Hodgson was just doing it to maneuver himself, to position himself so he could enforce indirect rule. Um, maybe he was forcing a war, we don't know. So, I mean, there's all these debates going on. Um, we've all, uh, you can all see the documents. So, if, if the, I mean, that's really the importance of them, the fact that no matter what, what the debate is, no matter how, how much is talked about it, the fact, that, the fact of the matter is that they'll always be there and um, you can always go back to it. Um, okay, um, I just want to thank uh, the National Archives and Jenny for giving me this opportunity and um, 
John Parker, who I don't think is here, but he, he was the one who taught us the module and gave us all this information. And, and yeah, thank you. and I'm a third year history undergraduate at Kingston University. As a module choice, we were given the option to participate in a as a volunteer at a historical related institution and I was assigned to the National Archives. Um, firstly, I wanted to explain why I decided to participate in the Gold Coast project rather than the Caribbean project, which I was initially assigned to. Um, it's because for me this is more of a familiar topic. I'm of West African descent um, from the Gambia, which was also subjected to colonialism. Um, yeah, it shared like the same colonial rule as Britain. Um, I also wanted to learn more about the nature of, nature of colonialism, as I'm half British as well, so it's quite interesting to me. And I wanted to understand the communication between the countries. I also found the Ashanti uprising very interesting. Uh, dispatches assigned to me actually covered this uprising, which is great. Um, next, I wanted to discuss what I've learned and gained from this project. I found some of the dispatches very interesting, particularly confidential ones. There's ones like regarding staff who have been misbehaving. Um, quite frequently there were dispatches concerning the dismissal of staff because they were intoxicated at work. Um, I found that many of the dispatches I covered were regarding ordinances, especially to do with the taxation of alcohol. It seemed quite a recurring thing. Um, what was especially interesting to me was the nature of the communication between the colonial officers and the British Prime Minister. Um, everything was reported back, even the smallest events, so that was why sometimes you go through a lot of boring stuff, but you do get the interesting stuff. So. Um, the dispatches also gave me insight into the relations of colonial officers and the village chiefs, and how responsibility was delegated, so I didn't really understand this before. Um, the main thing I think I would take away from this is just how complicated colonialism was and how it's both detrimental and beneficial to the country. Um, Britain was involved in building like, lots of projects, so it was good in a way, but also impressive. And lastly, I just want to say thank you for the, to the National Archives staff for letting me have this opportunity. It was really great, and it let me feel what it's like to put my history degree into practice. And yeah, that's it. Over to Gina. <laughs> Hi everyone. Um, well, first of all, this was a really great experience for me. Um, I was able to develop my interest in African history, as well as my knowledge of the cataloguing and archiving process at uh, the National Archives. I looked at three sets of dispatches, which covered the months of March, July, August and November 1900. I was struck by the variety of the dispatches in their content, their form and tone. Entries range from the dry bureaucratic function of government to reports of exotic diseases, confidential diplomatic exchanges, military tactics, sketches and photos. Spanning the political and the personal, these dispatches also encompass the comic, the tragic and the absurd. Due to the project's focus on revealing the voices from the volumes, I'd like to talk about um, two individuals today that I came across and their contrasting experiences. Um, firstly, Major A. Morris. And he was the acting commissioner and commandant of the Northern Territories. And I'd also like to talk about Kazi Jampoi, a West African farmer working in the Spanish colony of Fernando Pope. These individuals represent two very different experiences of the Gold Coast in this period. 
at opposite ends of the colonial, social and racial hierarchies of the time. They provide an insight into the Gold Coast during a period of both war and peace. And it's through their voices that I hope to highlight broader themes and events of this period. So firstly, Major Morris. Major Morris, as a prominent military figure and leader of the Ashanti campaign, unsurprisingly he featured quite a lot in the series. However, I'd like to focus on one dispatch in particular, and that's the annual report that he compiled on the Northern Territories. Uh, the Northern Territories being a region that's just been annexed by the British and would later become a protectorate in 1902. The report covers a diverse range of topics such as political climate, sources of revenue, transport, food supply, etc. And it provides an excellent insight into the social, economic and political landscape of the Northern Territories. It's also a great example of the attitudes of the colonial military elite and their attitudes to the people of the Gold Coast. Um, for example, under the heading of native subordinates, um, he writes, it's the first quote up there, uh, that by having a white officer and a certain number of houses permanently quartered amongst them, these people would come to understand that we were there for their good and protection and not merely in the capacity of tax gatherers. So this confidence in the inherent superiority of the colonial power is also late, later echoed when he says, uh, with the exercise of tact and patience, I consider that the confidence of the natives can be easily won and I have no hesitation in saying that they have the utmost reliance in not only the power but the justice of our rule. They are well aware that wherever the British flag flies, there will safety and protection be found. Um, I should just mention that um, the reference to houses um, that are, is an ethnic group in West Africa. Um, they were co-opted by a colonial government mainly for military and policing functions. And they are at the back. Uh, too very laid back. House offices in front. Um, yeah, so this dispatch seems to confirm the stereotypical portrayal of British colonialism as strongly imperialist and preoccupied with paternal and orientalist assumptions. However, we should be careful not to generalise just from one dispatch. And I'd like to reference another individual just to prove this. In a different dispatch, we learn about Captain Wilcox, who's a judge of the Gold Coast Volunteers. And he's been granted six months' leave. And the reason being, he's hopelessly drunk. Um, on the surface, this is something that's quite common, um, as Becky mentioned. Uh, yeah, it's quite common among colonial officials as a way of dealing with boredom, bouts of disease, and the lack of drinking water in the new and unpredictable territory that was Gold Coast. Um, but it was a small scribbled note that accompanied this dispatch that really caught my eye. It was written by a senior officer and it explained some of the harrowing experiences that Captain Wilcox had endured, which was probably contributed to his alcoholism and suicidal state. This note tells us about the difficulties he faced in Durban and the torture of prisoners he witnessed, which had the effect of having nearly driven him off his head. This reminds us of the hidden costs of war. Those who are mentally damaged and traumatised by the Ashanti conflict, something that is rarely acknowledged by colonial authorities. Interestingly, when this dispatch was received by the colonial office in London, uh, the cover sheet they added actually omitted these details and they recorded only the request for leave. So this dispatch is a useful contrast to the imperialist rhetoric and colonial brashness of Major Morris's report. This serves to demonstrate the artificial dichotomy between official and personal sources. The two are inextricably linked. It's also a good example of how going beyond the service of an official government source to discover the personal, more complicated truth can help foster a deeper understanding of the colonial experience at the time. Uh, which brings me to the second key 
do something that I'd like to talk about. And that's Carsey Jumperoy. Carsey Jumperoy, he was a farmer working in the Spanish colony of Fernando Po. And this dispatch reports the ill treatment of West Africans who had been recruited to work in Fernando Po and the action taken by the government of the Gold Coast to address this. It's important to know that Britain was just one of several European powers with colonial interests in West Africa at the time. And indeed, several of the dispatches that I came across discussed this uneasy relationship between them. It's an unusual dispatch because it was the first and only one I came across that contained letters written by West Africans themselves, one of which was Kazi Jampoe, who described the barbaric punishment he suffered at the hands of his mulatto master. He relates how his master tied some of the labourers, hung them up on a stick, made fire and placed it under the tree to burn or roast them. This severe punishment was done to six of the labourers, and he says, I don't know their names, I cannot tell whether they're dead or alive. The dispatch is useful in demonstrating the colonial authorities' concern for the treatments of its subjects, albeit through a paternalistic prison, and as a chance to score some points against the Spanish, which was an opportunity they weren't going to miss. But the process is also revealing here that an African labourer had the confidence in his rights as a colonial subject to express his grievances without fear of retribution. And the fact his letter reached the level of governor for Gulf Coast is quite remarkable. It's also interesting because by focusing on the experience of West African labourers, it provides an alternative discourse on the colonial experience and restores an often silent voice in these sources. It challenges the perception that colonial authorities have no consideration for West Africans' working conditions. It also sheds light on broader issues such as racial hierarchies, fluidity of labour and the legal uncertainty and regional disparity that existed in the Gold Coast. Evidence of African agency can also be found elsewhere in the series. I'd like to just touch on another example just to demonstrate this. Um, I came across a photo of a clock when I discovered um, it was commissioned by the people of Axim in south of the Gold Coast to commemorate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, and that's the clock just there, which Jenny's kindly put up for us. Um, yeah, it's quite an unusual clock. You know, this year we might see lots of clocks bringing up all over the UK, hopefully a bit more attractive than that one. Um, but a word of caution. The dispatch from Kazi Jampawo and the Diamond Jubilee clock should not lead us to exaggerate the extent to which local population embraced and supported colonial rule. Nevertheless, they are useful in undermining the assumption that colonialism was something imposed from the outside onto an unresponsive population who neither wanted nor adapted to these changes. So a few concluding comments then. Uh, the catalogue series as a whole provides a wealth of information that both confirms and challenges some of the historical assumptions we have about this period. The dispatches have provided evidence that undermines the assumption of the colonial experience as something monolithic, homogenous, and as something experienced by one particular group of people in one particular way. But in reality, it's the reciprocity and agency demonstrating the colonial exchange that is striking, as both the colonial power and West Africans negotiated and appropriated the influences of the colonial experiment during a time of peace and war. We should never let bear in mind, as Mahesh has pointed out, some of the limitations involved when looking at a select number of official sources. And we should appreciate that the voices of the past can be distorted by bias, interpretation and censorship. But despite these limitations, above all, this cataloguing project has demonstrated the real value of colonial and official sources to historians. Historians of colonial political and military history, but also historians of medicine, class, race and even clocks. 
by exploring these aspects through the political prism of British authority in West Africa and the personal stories of those caught up in it, we develop a far greater understanding of some of the tensions and opportunities during this extraordinary time in the history of the Gold Coast. Thank you. Thank you everyone. Uh, it just remains for me to say a huge thank you to all the volunteers who worked on the project um, and to all the volunteers that we have here at TNA, um, without which we can do a lot of what we do. Um, and thank you for coming. This event was recorded live on the 17th of May 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.